When it comes to the difficult doctrines of the Bible, the doctrine of election is one that has left many scratching their heads. One reason for this is because, listen, the the doctrine of election deals with the divine decisions made by an infinite mind. That being the case, you know, our finite minds are instantly at a disadvantage. And the reason why is because it's difficult for us to wrap our finite minds around the decisions of God's infinite mind. Another reason for our confusion about the doctrine of election, well, it's due to the fact that the student of the Bible soon discovers that the word election is actually applied to different groups at different times and in several different ways. As a matter of fact, the Bible refers to elect angels. And not only that, but the Bible also refers to the Israelites who are elect. And then finally, uh, we see mention of Christians being elect and chosen by God. Uh, With all this being the case, there's clear categorical confusion when it comes to the biblical doctrine of election. Now, uh, for the sake of our study today, we're going to zero in on the election of Christians. And more specifically, uh, we're going to spend our time today examining the evidence of our election. As a matter of fact, as we make our way through the text before us this morning, we'll begin to see that the evidence of our election, it includes a faith that works. Secondly, we'll consider how the evidence of our election also includes a love that labors. Thirdly and finally, we'll see how the evidence of our election includes a hope that endures. Well, with this as the outline, if you would, let's open our Bibles now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here we find Paul. He's assuring his audience about their election by God. And as you make your way to the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to provide you with some context regarding this incredible epistle. And it'll first help you to know that most conservative Christian scholars believe that Paul wrote this letter around 50 A.D., Around 50 AD. And, and, and just as the name suggests here, Paul sent this epistle to the church that he planted there in the Macedonian city of Thessalonica. Now, as we continue to make our way through this incredible epistle, uh, we'll begin to see that Paul penned this letter in order to clear up their confusion about the second coming of Jesus Christ. There seemed to be some level of confusion about the second coming here within this church. And so Paul pens this epistle. And, and with all of this as our focus, I want to start our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to begin reading there at verse 1. Here Paul writes, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now, here in the beginning of this book, we find Paul, he's attributing attributing this letter to himself, and not only to himself, but also to his traveling companions, Silvanus and Timothy. And so these three guys were together when this letter was sent. And not only that, but Paul then goes on to address this letter to the church of the Thessalonians. 
In other words, this letter was initially sent to the church that Paul planted there in Thessalonica, and this was probably around 48 or 49 AD, uh, according to Luke's account uh, of Paul's second missionary journey. It was there in Thessalonica where a multitude of Greeks embraced the gospel of grace. And with that being the case, you know, Paul began this book by informing them that he was constantly giving thanks to God as he continued to make mention of them in his prayers. Now, how exciting was that for them to hear that Paul was praying for them? That Paul was continually praying for them and giving thanks for them. And not only was Paul praying for them, and not only was Paul giving thanks for them, but it's there in verse 4 where he also assures them about their election by God. That's what he says. He, He refers to these beloved brethren and their election by God. Now when it comes to the word election... You know, we here in America tend to think about the political process by which we cast our vote for the candidates that we're wanting to elect to some official government office. And in this sense, the word election refers to the organized choice, which is, you know, supposed to be made by we the people. Uh, You know, we think that every registered voter here in America should place their ballot in the official ballot box, which is then supposed to be secured for safekeeping until every legal vote can be counted. And, And in that, we can rejoice in knowing that our political elections here in the U.S. are the safest and the securest elections in the world. Right next to Venezuela. But seriously, you know, when Paul refers to the election of the beloved brethren in Thessalonica, he's not referring to the political uh, elections that we're used to thinking about. He, he wasn't suggesting that those Christians had become members of the church after being voted in by some sort of democratic process. No, instead, the election that Paul here is referring to, it's in reference to the election of the Lord. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the word election in this context, well, it's used in reference to the divine decision that's made by God, and it's a decision that's made before the foundations of the world. Incredible to think about. That this is an election which is based on a decision made by God before the foundations of the world when God the Father first elected his only begotten Son, to become our savior. As a matter of fact, it'll help you to know that God the Father refers to our Messiah as his elect one. It's actually in Isaiah chapter 42. It's verse one. There the Lord declares, behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, from this, we can see that the God of Israel, he refers to the promised Messiah as his elect one. That's right. Uh, The Messiah is the elect one, the one who is elected by God the Father to come and accomplish the work of salvation by offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. We're, of course, referring to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the elect one. And now that Jesus has offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, now those who trust in the elect one have also entered into the election of the Lord. This is by way of federal headship. Think about it like this, that under Adam, we are cursed because of the curse 
that was placed upon Adam. But under the Lord Jesus Christ, his election now applies to us. Therefore, those who are in Christ are what? We're elect. Those who trust in the elect one have become elect by way of federal headship. And with that being the case, every Christian can rejoice in knowing that we are the elect in God. To further make my case, let's turn our attention back to the introduction of this epistle. And if you would, look with me again here at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to draw your attention again to verse 2 where Paul declares, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Knowing your election by God. Now that word knowing, that word knowing was translated from a Greek word which was used of the knowledge that's acquired through an attentive inspection or careful examination of something. So when it comes to the question of election here, Paul was completely confident in the election of those Christians there at the church in Thessalonica. It's for this reason the scholars who created the New Living Translation, they render verse 4 in this way. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. I love that. Paul wasn't wondering. He wasn't questioning. He says, we know. We know that God loves you. And we know that God has chosen you to be his own people. Now, as we consider Paul's confidence here, I should take a moment to point out that there are many who struggle with questions about their own election. There are many Christians who struggle with questions about their salvation. As a matter of fact, at least two-thirds of self-professing Christians struggle with doubts about their salvation. Not only that, but I'm sure that we've all had questions from time to time about the salvation of others. And, and even here in this, in this room, you might be you know, wondering about the salvation of somebody else. You might be looking across the room thinking, I don't, I don't even think they're saved. Yeah, we all have questions about salvation. We all have questions about election. And we might be wondering, am I elect of God? With that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, well, how was Paul so confident how could Paul be so confident about the election of those who were there at the church in Thessalonica? Well, in order to answer this question, I want to turn our attention back to the introduction of this epistle. And so if you would, let's look again here at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's back up once again, begin reading at verse 2, because here again, Paul declares, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now, as we take another closer look at these verses, we must not fail to notice that Paul actually uh, appeals to three specific proofs which brought him to the conclusion that these people were truly Christians who had entered into the election of the Lord. And, and according to Paul here, the first proof that he presents, it's found there in verse 3. There he refers to their work of faith. Wait, what? Uh, work of faith? What in the world does Paul mean when he refers to the work of faith? I thought faith wasn't works. And how is it that they're working faith? And what does this mean? 
Was he suggesting that faith plus works equals election? Well, in order to answer this question, I want to remind you about a statement that Paul presents in Ephesians chapter 2. It's verses 8 through 10 where Paul declares, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. From this, we can see that the salvation of the Lord, it's a free gift of God's grace, which is received by how? By faith plus works? No. By faith and by faith alone. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith and not of works. We enter into the election of the Lord by faith, when we place our faith in the elect one, we enter into our election. At the same time, though, Paul also informs us here that those who have been saved by faith should then begin to walk in the good works that the Lord has prepared for us to accomplish. Or in other words, those who are truly saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will also then go on to become the servants of our Savior. I like the way that James put it in the second chapter of his epistle. There he asks this, what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that kind of faith save him? If Someone says they have faith, but then doesn't then go on to, to accomplish good works. Well, you know, what, is that a faith that can save Listen, the the faith that fails to produce the fruits of good works, it's a dead faith. Can a dead faith save? Not according to James. Conversely, the person who has placed their faith in the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus, if it's a true saving faith, then it's a faith that begins to produce the fruits of saving faith as we begin to engage in the work of faith. In other words, faith, true faith, produces good works. And as we begin to engage in the work of faith, the evidence of our election becomes evident to all as we accomplish the good works that the Lord has prepared for us to fulfill. Now, in light of this truth, I think that we should consider the challenge that Paul presented in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It's verse 5 where he says this, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? In other words, if you aren't confident in your election, well, then you ought to spend some time examining your faith. Do you have a dead faith? Or do you have a faith that truly leads to works? Do you have a faith that works or is your faith failing to bear the fruits of obedience? Are you still living a life that disqualifies you from becoming a disciple of our elect one? Or does your faith truly fill your heart with the holy desire to serve our Savior? And if so, you can rejoice in knowing that those who have a faith that works can also be confident of their election. Now this brings us to our second point, because listen, while it's true that the evidence of our election includes a faith 
that works. It's also true that the evidence of our election includes a love that labors. With this as the focus, I want to continue to consider the encouragement that Paul is presenting here in this letter that he sent to the church in Thessalonica. And if you would look with me here again at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll back up and begin reading once again at verse 2. Here again, Paul declares, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and what else? Your labor of love. Here in the middle of this verse, we find Paul presenting the second reason for why he was certain of their election. To sum it up with simplicity, Paul had witnessed the labor that had been motivated by their love. That's why he refers to their labor of love as an evidence of election. Now, for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word labor, which is found there in the middle of verse 3, It's actually translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are suffering in sorrow, which is caused by the trouble and the turmoil uh, and the the toiling of intensive exertion. So we're not just talking about work, but we're talking about intense work. We're talking about exertion that brings trouble and, and turmoil. In this sense, the word labor was oftentimes associated with even the pain of persecution in a Christian context. For example, you know that, that Greek word translated labor is the same word that Paul used in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where he declares this. He says, in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors in sleeplessness and in fastings, and the list goes on. Paul here was using the word labors in the context of a greater level of persecution. And in similar fashion, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul again uses the same Greek word as he lists the ways that he had suffered, which then not only includes labors, but also includes stripes above measures and frequent imprisonments, and the list goes on. In light of these examples, we can see how the Greek word rendered labor in a Christian context was oftentimes used in reference to the tough trials and the troubles that the Christians faced there in the first century. Further proof of my point is found uh, in Luke's account that we see in Acts chapter 17, uh, where Luke describes the days that Paul spent there planting the church in Thessalonica. And it's there where we learn about the Jews who then stirred up an evil mob of men from the marketplace, and together they went and attacked the house of Jason, where Paul and Silas had been staying. And not only that, but they uh, stirred up everyone in the, in the entire city as they tried to then turn the rulers against those first century saints. And listen, uh, this was just the beginning of the persecution that the Thessalonian Christians would go on to endure. The Christians in Thessalonica, uh, in Thessalonica, I should say, uh, they endured a great amount of persecution. And in the context of the Great Commission, they were laboring for the Lord. They were laboring for the Lord as they continued to accomplish the Great Commission of Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's in the second chapter of this book where Paul acknowledged their suffering by declaring for you, brethren, 
became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans. According to Paul, the Christians there in Thessalonica were suffering the same sort of persecutions that the Hebrew believers in Israel were experiencing there in the land of promise. That's right. The believers there in Thessalonica were being punished and persecuted for their faith in the Lord, and yet they continued laboring for the Lord as they spread the good news of the gospel message. And as Paul considered their commitment to the great commission of Christ Jesus, he became convinced that their labor of love was evidence of their election. In order to further grasp what Paul meant when he referred to their labor of love, well, it's important to understand that the word love found here in our text today, it's translated from the, uh, the Greek word agape. What this means is that Paul wasn't referring to the brotherly love that you might experience in Philadelphia, uh, nor was he referring to the familial love, you know, the, uh, the clear, no, no, he's referring to the, the, the benevolent form of love, which leads us to make sacrifices for one another. This is what we're talking about when we refer to agape love in a Christian context. The clearest example of agape love occurred on the cross where our Savior, he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And in this sense, we see that agape love is a self-sacrificial love. And as we consider his labor of love, and you better believe that the Lord Jesus was laboring in pain there on the cross. And as we consider this example, we can rejoice in knowing that those who trust in the elect one, Jesus Christ, well, we've also entered into the election of God according to the agape love of the Lord. At the same time, I must also insist that those who have truly placed their faith in the elect one, well, we're also going to become those believers who are living our lives according to the example of the Lord's agape love. Much like the first century saints there in Thessalonica, the evidence of our election will be seen in our labor of love. More simply put, those who trust in Jesus will learn how to love others with the self-sacrificial love of the Lord. And to prove my point, I just want to consider a handful of passages that uh, present us with this very precept. And I like the way, first of all, that, that the Apostle John put it in 1 John chapter 3. It's verse 16 where he declares, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In other words, the clearest example of agape love is seen on the cross where Jesus laid down his life for us. And now, in light of his example, those who trust in Jesus Christ should follow in his footsteps. We ought to be laying our lives down for one another as we labor in love. In Romans 13, Paul also instructs the Christians there in Rome with these words. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. We've been called to love one another with self-sacrificial love. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul directs the disciples there in Galatia by declaring this. He says, you brethren have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The agape love of the Lord will lead us to serve one another. In Luke chapter 6, the Lord Jesus also declares this. He says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. 
and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. Wow. We're not only called to love one another by serving one another, but we're called to love our enemies. And the best way to love our enemy is to do our best to lead them to the Lord. Without debate, the disciples of Christ have been called to walk in love. We've been called to love one another with the agape or self-sacrificial love of the Lord. And and while it's true that the agape love of the the Lord will lead us into this life of suffering, which is rooted in self-sacrifice, well, it's also true that our labor of love will help others around us to see that we've actually entered into the election of the Lord. When I see people you know, engaging in self-sacrificial love in the name of Jesus Christ, I think that person's a believer. They've clearly entered into their election. The evidence is found in their labor of love. And in order to further make my case, let's consider the way that Paul put it in the letter that he sent to his Hebrew kinsmen. And with this as the focus, if you would hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, and specifically Hebrews chapter 6. See, it's here in the sixth chapter of Hebrews where we find Paul. He's assuring his audience of their salvation as he's writing to the Hebrew believers uh, there in the first century. And as we consider his great confidence in their salvation, we must not fail to notice that he also mentions their labor of love as evidence of their election. Uh, Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Hebrews chapter 6. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 9. Here Paul declares, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope Until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Uh, Now here in this verse, you know, here here in these verses, I should say, uh, we find Paul, he's actually assuring his Hebrew audience that God was well pleased with their work. He also commends them for their labor of love that led them to serve the saints of God as they ministered to one another. Not only that, but he also informs them that those who demonstrate the same diligence will also have the full assurance of hope until the day of their redemption. And what this means is that the diligent disciple who is serving our Savior can also be confident in their election. I like the way that the Apostle John put it in 1 John chapter 3. It's there where he declares, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. In other words, those who just talk the talk but don't walk the walk, there is no evidence of their election. Those who talk the talk, those who, you know, fake it till they make it, will eventually find out they didn't make it. Please understand that 
the evidence of our election isn't seen in that we talk a good game or that we're able to use Christianese, that we're able to say all the right, you know, Christian-like words and sound like, like a saint. No. It also includes a love that is in word and deed. The Christian who is laboring in the agape love of the Lord can enjoy the assurance of their salvation as they continue to love in both deed and truth. And with that being the case, I encourage you to follow the instructions that Paul presents in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's verse 58 where he declares, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now this brings us to our third and final point because listen, the evidence of our election not only includes a faith that works and a love that labors, but the evidence of our election also includes a hope that endures. With this as the focus, if you would, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's here in 1 Thessalonians 1 where we find Paul. He's presenting us with the third evidence of election. And if you would, let's back up and begin reading here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'll focus your attention once again at verse 2. Here Paul declares, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. And here in these verses we find Paul, he's referring to the patience of hope that the Christians there in Thessalonica had, had demonstrated as they walked by faith with Jesus Christ. And for the sake of clarity, it'll help us to understand that that word hope, which is found there in verse 3, well, it's translated from a Greek word, which in a Christian context, it speaks of the joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. In other words, Paul wasn't uh, referring to the sort of wishful thinking that some people associate with the word hope. You know, a lot of times when people use the word hope, uh, they don't really understand that they're not really using the word hope. You know, a lot of people talk about, you know, I hope for this and I hope for that and, and have no expectation that those things are actually going to take place. That's just wishful thinking. That's not hope. Hope is that joyful and confident expectation of something. And the Christians there in Thessalonica had hearts that were filled with hope as they patiently waited for the day of their redemption. In order to further grasp this evidence of election, I should take a moment to point out that the word patience, as we talk about the patience of hope, well, that word patience found in the middle of verse 3 was translated from a Greek word which speaks of the steadfast persistence of those who are completely committed to Christ. The same Greek word was also used of those who persevere every trial and tribulation with unwavering endurance. And what this means is that the believers there at the church in Thessalonica, they were not only laboring in love, but they were also maintaining their confidence in the promises of Christ as they patiently persevered the pain of persecution. In other words, they were enduring every hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And as Paul considered the commitment of those Christians there at the church in Thessalonica, he was convinced about their election in the Lord. From this, we can see that those who endure the pain of persecution 
with a heart that's still filled with hope? Well, they're simultaneously demonstrating the evidence of their election. Further proof of my point can be found in in the letter that Paul sent to the church in Rome. And with this as the focus, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to the book of Romans. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. As you make your way to the 8th chapter of Romans, well, I just want to take a moment to address the questions of those who are struggling to understand why a good and loving God would allow people to experience pain and suffering while we're here in this world. This is a question that many have asked, and it's a question that has led many to even deny the existence of God. And the reason why is because they struggle to understand how a God who is all good and all loving and all powerful would then fail to protect you know, the people here on the planet from disasters and disease and death. Knowing that we've all experienced various trials and tragedies throughout our time here on this planet. You know, we, we've all suffered things that crush our spirits and diminish our hope. If you've wrestled with this question about why God allows these things to happen, well, we'd all do well to remember that our creator actually has a perfect purpose in the pain and the suffering that he allows. Might be hard to wrap our minds around that, but it's true. To prove my point, let's consider the perspective that Paul presents here in Romans chapter 8. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 18. Here Paul declares, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Here in these verses, we find Paul helping the Christians there in Rome to realize that the Lord has a righteous reason, even a divine purpose for the pain and the suffering that he allows us to experience here in this world. Just to be clear, you know, our creator subjected the entirety of creation to the curse so that the sufferings that sinners experience here in this world might bring them to our Savior Jesus. Yeah, the Lord allows pain and suffering here in this world to bring people to the end of themselves so that they might seek a Savior, so that they might look up and trust in our elect uh, Messiah. In this way, the creation was subjected to futility because of him who subjected it in hope. The hope that people would trust in Jesus Christ. 
Now remember, the word hope refers to the joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. And and while it's true that those who trust in Jesus have been saved into this hope, it's also true that this is the hope that enables every born-again believer now to endure the sufferings that we experience here in this world as we eagerly wait for the redemption of our bodies with patient perseverance. And knowing that the born-again believer will eventually receive a resurrected body which is raised in sinless perfection, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that those who trust in the elect one are also filled with this hope that helps us to endure. I like the way that Paul put it in Colossians chapter 1. It's there where he declares, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Think about it. Christ in you is the hope of glory. In other words, those of us who have received the Lord Jesus Christ into our hearts have also received the joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation as we look forward to the day of our glorification. Listen, those who have a heart that's filled with this hope, we also begin to develop an, an, an eternal perspective which enables us to endure the trials and the troubles of this world because we recognize that this life is nothing but a vapor of smoke which is here in one moment and gone the next. And yet there's coming a day when we will be raised incorruptible and in a perfect body which will never experience pain and suffering. We look forward to that day with hope. At the same time, the Lord is simultaneously using the trials and the tribulations that we experience to perfect those who trust in him. This is precisely the point that James was making in James chapter one. There he declares, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Christian, listen, whether you realize it or not, the the Lord is actually using every trial that we experience to test our faith so that in the test we might be sanctified. He's using every trouble that we suffer to perfect those who trust in him. Therefore, rather than grumbling about the trials, rather than complaining about the troubles of this world, James says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. So that we can learn to patiently endure every test. Yeah, count it all joy. Yeah, but the economy is going to collapse this year. Count it all joy. Yeah, but my my family's falling apart and we can't seem to get along. Count it all joy. Yeah, but I keep getting older and uglier and fatter. Count it all joy. I don't have to look at me. Praise the Lord. Count it all joy knowing that these trials and troubles are being used by the Lord to perfect us. And in this way, the patience of hope that we have 
helps us to become more and more like the elect one. With this as the goal, it's crucial for every Christian to develop this perspective so that we might realize that the Lord actually has a perfect purpose in the trials and troubles that he allows into our lives. He's using every trial and every trouble to perfect us. Do you not want to be perfected? It's important for us to realize that this path of perfection, it requires our participation. To explain what I mean, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. And as you're making your way to the third chapter of John's first epistle, it's important for us to realize that if we go through a trial and we just complain about it the whole time and we don't actually experience the the perfection that, that the Lord intended through the trial, well, then guess what happens when the trial is done? Uh, well, we have to go back through the same trial again. If we don't participate through the process of the perfecting and and we miss out on the trial, well, uh, guess what? Well, we're going to go back through the trial over and over and over and, uh, and over again until we finally get it. Some of us have been on a third, fourth, fifth course of the same trial, and every time you miss the point which is your perfection because you'd rather grumble and complain about the trial than actually experience the perfecting that happens through it, which is why we need to participate in the perfection process according to the instructions that John presents here in first John chapter three. And with this as the focus, let's consider the encouragement uh, that the apostle presents here in the third chapter of his first epistle. Look with me there beginning at verse two here. John declares beloved. Now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. There's coming a day when we're going to be like Jesus as we stand in his presence. But for now, if this hope is really in your heart, then you will purify yourself in the same way that Jesus is pure. If you truly have the hope that fills our hearts with the joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation, then the evidence of this hope will be seen in the way that we are actively purifying our lives according to the sinless purity of the Lord. And while there's no doubt that this path of perfection is filled with many trials and many troubles that are used to perfect us, We can also be confident in knowing that the patience of hope will help us to endure these hardships if if we would simply walk in obedience as we continue to travel this path of purity according to the perfect will of the Lord. With this as the goal, I encourage every Christian to follow the instructions that Peter presents in 2 Peter chapter 1, because he really does uh, provide us with a step-by-step plan for this process. And it's here in 2 Peter chapter 1 where Peter declares this. He says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. Perseverance. 
to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old ways. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here in these verses, we find the apostle Peter. He's encouraging every Christian to become diligent disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ by making our calling and our election sure. According to Peter, we are to make our call and our election more sure. And according to him, the best way for us to make our election more sure is to make sure that we're on the path of perfection as we add to our faith virtue, knowledge, and self-control, and perseverance, and godliness, and brotherly kindness, and agape love. More simply put, the evidence of our election includes a hope that endures every hardship as we press toward the goal of the upward call of Christ. And in this way, we become more and more and more like our elect Messiah as we make our election more sure. As we begin to wrap up this first study from 1 Thessalonians, well, it's my prayer that we would all become born-again believers who are manifesting the evidence of election. If you're still unsure about your election, then I encourage you to examine your, your own life. You ought to take some time to examine your life by asking this, do I have a faith that works according to the word of God? Do I have a love that labors according to the agape love of the Lord? Do I have a hope that endures as I move forward on the path of perfection? Because listen, if these things are true of you, if you have a faith that works and a love that labors and a hope that endures, then there is clear evidence of your election in the Lord. And in this, you can rejoice. But if these things are not true of you, I encourage you, embrace the elect one by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can enter into the election of the elect one. And by faith in the elect one, let's walk by that faith with Jesus Christ. And as we do, the Holy Spirit will help us to have a faith that works. He will help us to have a love that labors. And he will help us to have a hope that endures. And in this way, our Messiah will help us to manifest the evidence of our election. Let's pray.